Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. What we need to do is not look back to jobs. It's old news. You know, we all know that. It's like ancient news, and we're always looking forward here at surveillance. Let's do that on the labor economy and on the view forward with Carl Riccadonna, chief U.S. economist at BNP Paribas uh, Markets 360. Carl, I, I want to slice, and you do this in your research note, you slice and dice the confusion that's out there. I think the financial media is way too simplistic about the labor reports, plural, and the debate Friday, was it a good report or a bad report? Which part of the complexities of labor matter to this confusion? Was it a good report? Was it a bad report? I would say it was a good report, not a great report, and not as strong as the headline would have you believe, because when we start parsing into the details, uh, not only was there a big uh, negative net revision to the prior right. two months, you should lop that off of the top line, uh, also the uh, decline in the work week. So uh, one-tenth decline in the work week is equivalent to about 200,000 jobs. So you take that off of the number, and you're really talking about a uh, okay. labor market that is showing signs of weakness. So we have all these different labor gauges. Right. Uh, what I think we need to to do because the most important thing is the take-home pay for workers. Uh, and when we look at that number in aggregate, we can absolutely see that the trend is decelerating. It's heading uh, you know, below uh, the rate of inflation at the moment. And so this is a big problem for households. Uh, the, 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 the rocket fuel for consumer spending uh, is coming in in a you know, dramatically slower fashion going forward. And that has right. big implications for how consumers look later this quarter and especially into next and year. Part of this is the microeconomics foundations of this. You were so fortunate, Princeton, to have a guy named H. Rosen, Harvey Rosen held court on look at the minutiae. You do that in your research note. You're doing Harvey Rosen 101, and you're saying look at labor supply. What is the distinction of the American labor supply right now? The supply simply isn't there, and it's not just a story of early retirements. Uh, it's happening across a, a broad swath of uh, the uh, labor base, uh, and this tells us there's less slack than uh, meets the eye. And if we're printing jobs at a pace of 200,000 plus per month, uh, this is continuing continuing to amp up the pressure in the labor market. And we saw that in the latest average it's on the edge of Neil numbers. That's not bury the lead. Not, not to correct you on air, but I think it's Harvey Rosen 102, not 101. Okay, excuse me. Let's not bury the lead. <clears throat> How fast is Fed going to go? Because I know the BNP call 
is a little bit out there compared to maybe the consensus. Sure. Uh, well, it is now. We'll see uh, what happens after the press conference uh, next week. Uh, but we do think that there's another 50 basis point uh, tightening in December. Uh, we expect another 50 basis points in February and then finishing it off at uh, 25 bips at the March meeting. So we're at a terminal rate of uh, five and a quarter, uh, consistent entirely uh, with what we're seeing in terms of the upward surprises on labor, GDP, consumer spending. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're slowing, but we're not slowing quite fast enough, so the Fed has Do- a bit more work to do. Dr. Rigadon is like take-two aspirin. He doesn't talk the same as when he was here. You mean he's quicker? He's sharper. quicker. He's like, he's like so let's get this, to work. this, this, this. When can I go yeah. home? Can I go back yeah. to the office now? Yeah. <laughs> Is there upside risk to that call? What's the balance of risk around that call? I think it's a pretty balanced uh, risk okay. at this uh, point in time. But, uh, you know, the story has been over the last few months, the you know, resilience in, in the labor market. So we uh, jokingly put a subtitle in our write-up of the jobs report, uh, uh, more Rocky Balboa than Rocky uh, in terms of the, the labor market. <laughs> Stallone. You know, oh, the, Rocky. The exactly. Exactly. I think Rocky Got Balboa. It. Got you get it. it Philadelphia. This it. is wasted on you, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's Philadelphia time. I haven't seen the movie, actually. But, but the, the, the point is that stop. Uh, there's stop. continuing can stop. upside <laughs> That's surprises, not true. whether it's retail sales, labor data, uh, you know, GDP figures, et cetera, et cetera. So you know, the Fed is going to keep at it until the job is done, and the latest data suggests they may have to keep at it a little bit more than uh, previously anticipated. Are we seeing a shift from Chairman Powell from the news conference to Brookings? What did you I think about that? I don't think we're seeing a shift. Just because he didn't talk about uh, financial <clears throat> conditions, the point you were highlighting earlier today on the program, uh, he's, you know, there's a big difference between where we are now compared to where we were between the July FOMC presser and the Jackson Hole uh, speech where he ripped up the script and <clears throat> delivered this very hawkish uh, message. Uh, we see a turn happening in the inflation numbers. Uh, we see that the housing sector is slowing down. We see the impact of a stronger dollar and tighter rates in the factory sector and in manufacturing. So the Fed feels less behind the curve at the moment, and so there's mm-hmm. less need to aggressively run out and try to stage manage uh, financial conditions. Uh, instead, they can let the markets react to the signaling from the updated dot plot and summary of economic projections. I'm going to move to the nine o'clock hour uh, looking at, you know, different things with Stephen Roach. And I want to start with him with wage spiral. Help us out here. Define what a wage spiral is as it slips into our conversation. Well, wage price spiral is when uh, workers are demanding higher wages to keep up with inflation, but those higher wages are then providing the fuel and the funding uh, to sustain those price increases. Uh, it's too early to say uh, that we're in that dynamic at the moment because the economy is undergoing a massive deceleration, right? If we look at real GDP, it was about 13% year on year in the middle uh, of last year. Uh, it was 6% at year end, about 2% middle of this year. Uh, it's heading close to zero uh, this year. So with that kind of deceleration, you know that the wage trend is going to decelerate as well. uh, And therefore, uh, there's a good chance that we break this dynamic before a a real uh, 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 deleterious feedback loop uh, comes about. How is it broken? What's the actual, your study of history and how we act? Do we have wages deflate or do they We won't have wages deflate, but what will happen is that as the labor market starts to loosen up, then you'll see that bargaining power quickly eroded uh, from uh, U.S. workers. So we're not there yet. We're printing a north of 200,000 on jobs. Uh, but I think by the first quarter of this year, uh, we could very well see our first negative payroll print. And then Ooh, as the wow. loosening starts to come about, we are in the recession camp for next year, uh, probably starting in Q2. That loosening of labor conditions as the unemployment rate moves from a low of three and a half towards 6% at the peak, uh, that will erode the bargaining power and prevent the, the feedback loop from a So that's the trajectory for growth. 
Can you give us the glide path for inflation? Maybe a sneak peek of next week and beyond. Sure. Well, the first bit is easy. So getting to eight from 8% CPI to uh, 4 uh, is something that can probably happen in about two or three quarters. Uh, getting from 4 to 2 uh, is the hard part. And, and so, uh, you know, that requires the, the, the rent story uh, to change meaningfully. And also, really, the, the core inflation metric we have to be watching at the moment uh, is uh, core services x rents. Uh, and not to be too cute, but now we have to strip out medical services as well because of these uh, this accounting dynamic uh, related to insurance payments and COVID and whatnot. So if you look at that component of the CPI, that's where you watch for your wage price spiral dynamics. Interesting. And we're seeing no improvement on that front yet. Right. So, so that, that tells the Fed they have to keep hammering away at the problem. Uh, it's easy to get from eight to four. From four to two probably takes till about the end of uh, 2024. So this is a question more along the lines of a, rea- a reaction function question on the Fed. Yes. So if I put the two pieces together, you've got growth, recession, inflation, kind of sticky, difficult to get from four to two. Is the Fed holding interest rates at your 525 as the economy rolls into They're recession going to have and inflation to, hold to it fall? there for a much longer period of time, John. And this is something that the markets haven't fully come to appreciate. Uh, Powell teased this in the November press conference when he said uh, shift away from the pace to the level and the duration. The market has refocused to the level, but I don't think they fully incorporated the right. duration. And the Fed won't be the, the white knight riding to the rescue, uh, as it normally is in a recession. Instead, the Fed, we expect to stay at this five and a quarter level, uh, basically right. for the entirety of next year. And they could start uh, easing, but not moving into accommodative territory in 2024. Okay, this is sacrilege at BNP Paribas, a very conservative shop. But the zeitgeist now is Oleg Karenko at Virginia Commonwealth University over to the giant Olivier Blanc chart at the Peterson Institute, which Paul Krugman wrote about four or five days ago, of the new 2%. As you mentioned, 4% is a challenge. The new 2% is going to be elevated out in the vicinity of 3%. Can we withstand that? Is You know, that theoretical chit-chat of people like you, can we withstand a new inflation level above 2%? It's going to be hard to get to that 2% level. And I know there's a lot of discussion right now. I'm fielding lots of questions. Why not change the inflation target? Uh, And the the, the Fed officials, uh, presidents and governors alike, are of the same view that we have to achieve 2% 2% to, to prove uh, that we can hit the 2% target. If there is a time to relax the inflation thre- threshold and whatnot, they have to do it from the other side of, uh, of the new threshold. And so they have to get to 2%, prove we can stay there. If they have a compelling reason because of demographics or energy costs or otherwise, uh, well, they would yeah. then need to maybe reevaluate what the, the longer-term target could be. Uh, they can do that, but you can't, you can't do that when you're this far off of the target uh, to the high side. Party at Carl's Saturday morning. Football. France, England. And now you're at BNP, do you have to pretend to like do you have to pre- yeah. we. the World Cup? We. 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 Just fluent French now as well. <laughs> Babble do, and do Duolingo. You walk, around with, <laughs> do you walk around with French flags supporting the national team? Is that we. how it works? <laughs> Just, that's it. That's it. <laughs> I'm only on if you see, one. If you seriously <laughs> never, can we clear this up? Because people want to know. If you never watched Rocky? I have honestly never watched the movie. You've never movie. watched Rocky? It, it was a show. John, this is where I walk off set. What? I, this is, TK. Come with me, John. What? Seriously? I, You've never watched Rocky? No. I'm leaving I just, with Cal. I just, it's, you know, it's painful. You are leaving I, I'm with Cal. I'm leaving with Cal. <laughs> Have you never watched Rocky? Has that even happened? I, I don't know. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? 
look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash Enterprise Data to learn more. Let's do this right now. And we really thank Rebecca Patterson for being with us with Bridgewater. She had every reason to cancel after the shock uh, last week of their performance. She is the chief investment strategist for Bridgewater, which was doing so better than good and ran into challenges. Rebecca, without getting into the nite grite of Bridgewater, what were the challenges you faced in the last 90 days? Well, we take views that are usually six to 18 months out. And so as we're looking at the world, we continue to be quite cautious on assets. We think that the market is discounting Goldilocks, that the Fed is going to be able to start easing in the second half of next year without any material hit to earnings and only a very moderate slowdown in the economy. And we just don't think that adds up. And so as we've seen this bear market rally in recent months, the market responding to increased hope that the Fed will pause and then start actually cutting rates next year, uh, we have have seen growth assets, risky assets performing well. Um, but we, we still believe that as we go into 2023, while there is going to be this tug of war, how much will the Fed accept inflation versus force inflation mm-hmm. to its target? How much growth pain will we get? We continue to believe that there's another shoe that has to drop, and that is the economy. It's resilient today still, with the exception of housing. But we think the Fed is going to have to push demand lower to get that wage inflation down. Right. And they're not likely to ease next year. With your years at J.P. Morgan Bessemer and now with Bridgewater, tell us about the dollar as the litmus paper of the system. Suddenly, weak dollar. Did that diminish the Bridgewater total return and lead to those quarterly losses? And what is a weaker dollar signal now? Well, the dollar, as you said, has been giving up a lot of its gains from earlier this year and and in the last year or so. We think as long as liquidity conditions remain tight, and remember, the Fed is still raising rates. They may slow the pace, but they're still raising rates, and we've got quantitative tightening, which is double the pace of what we saw in 2018. Plus, we have rate hikes going globally, with the exception of maybe Japan, China. And so these tightening liquidity conditions tend to support the dollar. The dollar is the world's funding currency. So yes, you've seen this sell-off, this technical um, profit-taking, if you will, on the dollar in recent months, but we don't think we've seen a major dollar top along the lines of what we saw in 1970, 85, the early 2000s. Maybe we're going to be in a bit more of a range over the coming months as we play through this tug-of-war of China reopening and the, and central banks. How much will they tighten? But we don't think we've seen a sustained turn yet. Rebecca, where do you have the terminal rate at the Federal Reserve? 
Well, we're not trying to predict specific numbers for the stock market or the Fed funds. We're trying to understand the degree of pressures on the economy that's going to translate into market outcomes. But certainly, if we need to see wage inflation, which by the Atlanta Fed's measure is still running well over 6%, if we need to get that down two or three percentage points to get U.S. inflation closer to the Fed's target, um, then I think we're going to see the Fed going at least to 5% on the Fed funds with a probability that's not not de minimis that they may have to go higher. The trick is if they get to the spring sometime and maybe pause to give time for Fed hiking so far to play through the economy, maybe inflation comes down to 3 4%. But if the Fed's not happy with that, then they may have to do an additional round of tightening. And we saw that before in the 1970s and early 80s. You needed three rounds of tightening for the Fed to actually get inflation under control. The market absolutely is not discounting that possibility. We're not saying it's our base case, but it's certainly a risk that we think is is something people should consider. Your base case sounds like five. Is that fair? From what I just heard there, is five fair? I think I think five is certainly plausible okay. and, and it is very possible we could go higher than that. So five's the base case. That's largely what's been priced in the market for quite a while. Largely expecting the Federal Reserve to put that in their projections next week. Rebecca, I think a lot of people might sit here and say, well, that's priced. We're done mm-hmm. with that. And to get that extra leg of dollar strength, I need something else. And Rebecca, I guess the right. question is, what is it in your base case that delivers that something else? I, I try not to interrupt you because I'm dying to answer the question. Sure. It's easy. What's not priced is the Fed going high and holding. The market's anticipating right now that we get significant rate cuts starting in the second half of next year. And we think without severe economic weakness to justify that, we're going right. to get the Fed pausing but not cutting. And so as that is changed and what the discounted, uh, what the market is discounting, we think that could add a layer mm-hmm. of support to the dollar. Again, don't forget, we're not talking about an end of quantitative tightening or rate hikes around the world well. You know, I just want to point out, Ms. Patterson never is dying to interrupt me. It's only you she is dying to interrupt. Do you think that's, why, why do you I think mean, that is? Because, you know, I don't know. I'm just not uh, getting it going. See, to be fair, though, it's a good response about the persistence of the Fed staying there and holding uh, I think just, pushing back on. against this view that we get these rate cuts from the Rebe- Federal Reserve John, anytime soon. Rebecca and I remember when you made a six-month call. If you were really, you know, an 18-month call was strange. Now we got, we're going to pivot in January. In the fourth week of February, we're going to pivot again. And then by the first week of April, we're going to do this, this, this. Forget about it. Rebecca, cash is trash. What is the value of cash to our listeners and viewers into 2023? Well, what's so interesting, Tom, is that we're really seeing the market move into a new paradigm. We haven't had short-term rates this high in a very long time. And so it is interesting to think about how our investors are going to position for the next decade versus the last decade. The last decade was all about um, low and stable inflation, low macro volatility, low commodity prices. And now if we're in a regime where there's more uncertainty around the level of inflation, more uncertainty around where where interest rates should settle, 
what's the right portfolio to construct? Should you stay overweight the U.S.? Should you stay overweight tech? How much private assets should you have in your portfolio? We think there's some tectonic plates that are shifting right now and assuming that they can be sustained, and we think there's a real chance they can, I think we're going to get a lot of, of more structural, bigger market changes, portfolio allocation changes in the year or two ahead as people realize this is a different world we're moving into. Not that inflation is going to settle at four or five, but um, it certainly could settle higher than where it's been with rates higher than they've been as well. Got to squeeze this in. This is great, Rebecca. Just one final question. What's the biggest change that you're expecting that so far the conversations that you're having with clients, they're pushing back on still? What's the number one change you think we're going to see? Well, I think the structural change is inflation. I think the cyclical change, the biggest thing to watch for 2023 is growth. I think we're going to have to see growth weaker for central banks to hit their targets. And that's not yet reflected in earnings. Rebecca Patterson, thank you. It's brilliant. Bridgewater, just fantastic. As we celebrate, and I mean truly celebrate, Accidental conflict, America, China, and the clash of false narratives. This, of course, was Stephen Roach. You've heard me in the recent days say essentially he invented modern market economics at Morgan Stanley and, of course, now at his Yale University. Dr. Roach, thank you so much for joining us uh, this morning. I do want to ask one American a question before we celebrate your informative uh, book, and that is simply, do we hearken back to the fears of the 60s and the 70s and a wage price spiral? Well, the wage price spiral back then, Tom, was heavily impacted by cost of living uh, indexation clauses in uh, labor union contracts. And two things have happened. Uh, labor unions are a much smaller share of the workforce, and these COLA adjustment uh, clauses are less prevalent than they were back then. And nevertheless, you know, wages are, you know, labor is an, a, a, a very important segment of overall business costs, and uh, tight labor markets are certainly boosting. Um, uh, the compensation piece of that and weak productivity is reinforcing it. So it's it's important to stay focused on this issue. Stephen Roche to China. Sir Howard Davies mentions of your uh, book that it is 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 a way to a new framework, a new discussion of both parties. We need goodwill among United States and China. How do we find that goodwill? Well, number one, we have to recognize that the current approach that we've uh, both been wedded to over the past 20 years is an abysmal failure. In the last five years, we've had the, um, the beginnings of a, a trade war, a tech war, and now the early stages of a new Cold War. So in accidental conflict, I propose a, uh, a new approach based on three key pillars, uh, one, uh, rebuilding trust by going after the low-hanging fruits of reopening con uh, consulates and restarting exchange programs, taking pressure off of uh, uh, NGOs. Secondly, uh, abandoning the zero-sum bilateral trade framework, which makes no sense and has not worked at all, embracing a market-opening pro-growth initiative uh, framed around a bilateral investment treaty. And thirdly, uh, really uh, making an effort to uh, establish a new architecture 
for engagement. These summits like the one that uh, Xi Jinping and Joe Biden had on November 14th, uh, they're long on uh, photo ops, but they accomplish right. nothing. I'm in favor of a new uh, full-time organization that I call a U.S.-China secretariat, which is detailed in the book. But after the Party Congress and what we see from the leadership in Beijing, a leadership perhaps forever, is the idea, as you mentioned in one of your chapters, a China with American characteristics. There seems to be zero desire for that out of Beijing. Well, China wants to do it its way, and that's been an affront to us. We had this rather naive presumption that we'd let China into the WTO. They would play by our rules and become more like us. They had the facade of presenting uh, that similar appearance, but they've certainly gone their own way, and that that remains a worrisome part of the ongoing conflict. Steve, you, you live this. I mean, some would say with your The Next Asia, you actually were the first one to write about this within market economics. You're sitting with James Gorman now having a cup of coffee. Does Morgan Stanley move from Hong Kong to Singapore? Well, I'm no longer employed by that firm where I worked for 30 years, so I'll leave that up to them to comment on. But uh, certainly Singapore has benefited a lot from the, the shifts that have occurred in Hong Kong, but Hong Kong, to its credit, is uh, trying to uh, reclaim its uh, position as uh, a major financial center uh, in uh, non-Japan Asia, and we'll see if they can pull it off. How do you react to the bipartisan nature of this in Washington, Steve? I mean, it's one of the very, very few ideas in Washington where there seems to be common ground. And, you know, there, there were waves of this going from Chiang Kai-shek and back to World War II, 1947 in uh, all. Is this just another wave of bipartisan anti-China feeling, or is there a permanence to this? Well, it's politically expedient uh, for the, the U.S. to do it. I mean, the, the sentiment is uh, virtually the only thing, as you said, Tom, that's unanimous um, uh, within the Republican and, and Democratic uh, ranks, and it's, it's going to be hard to dislodge. One of the big surprises for, for me was the election of Joe Biden, if anything, um, has not uh, altered the Trump uh, anti-China policies. If anything, it's amplified it. And for a, a president who repudiated so much of his predecessors mm -hmm. uh, on popular policies like the border wall and the Muslim travel ban to perpetuate what I think is a, uh, a, a wrong-footed U.S.-China policy is a disappointment and a surprise. Tim Cook reads Accidental Conflicts, Stephen Roach. What does he do? I mean, what is the, what is the approach for multinational Americans led by Apple in China? Well, you know, Tim Cook's been leading the way in reevaluating uh, the commitment of U.S.-based multinationals to a full uh, outsourcing uh, bet in, in China. Apple is uh, obviously the quintessential uh, a producer who's taken advantage of this production platform in um, Guangdong province. And they're now, uh, for a variety of reasons, understandable, but right. the conflict is part of it, starting to diversify production of the iPhone into India slowly, but um, that's a move that uh, needs to be watched very carefully for the future. With all of your experience, do you have a confidence they can get manufacturing process in other nations equal to what they've invented in China? 
Well, I, you know, I think uh, China certainly has made a huge bet uh, in in terms of uh, revamping its uh, infrastructure and equipping its uh, companies and workers with uh, the latest in technical skills and uh, new technologies. But by no means does it have a monopoly on that opportunity. Right. And, and you know, that's what globalization does. It it offers similar opportunities for other um, uh, offshore low-cost production platforms. Stephen, in the time that I've got left, I think we need to talk about one of your calls. You've been very, very candid about this and the idea of weak dollar. Well, guess what? It's been a Steve Roach quarter. We had a resilient dollar, and finally, there's a new weakness with international investment doing better with that weak dollar. Is this the great Roachian turn? Well, I don't know how great that that is for me because it was one of my more humiliating forecasts. I, I promised myself. We've I'd had never a few, forget. right? Yeah, I've had a few, but this was this was a bad one. Um, but uh, you know, it's it's very much tied to the Fed. Um, as I look back on the mistake that I made, um, I, I think it was a fair mistake to make at the time because the Fed uh, a couple of years ago showed uh, uh, no desire to be aggressive to tighten uh, monetary policy to counter what it incorrectly presumed was a transitory inflation. The Fed's gotten religion, and now as it is a nearing, not so much a pivot, but a, a sort of a second derivative slowing in the rate of rate hikes, uh, some of the bid has come off the dollar, but the mm -hmm. dollar is still a good deal higher than it was when I made that seemingly dumb call. Well, Stephen, let me finish up with the optimism of accidental conflict as well. Where do you want to be in 12 months? I mean, short term for the Chinese and frankly, short term for America as well. What is the to-do the to list that we need to do to get to the goodwill Howard Davies talks about? We need to re-engage. There is absolutely not anyone uh, in our political structure, Republicans and Democrats alike, especially in leadership roles, who's willing to make a bet in re-engaging with the Chinese. There's a lot of things about China that are uncomfortable and unpleasant that we have focused on. But uh, the two most uh, powerful economies, the two superpowers, uh, need a more constructive yeah. framework of engagement. And I propose that in the book with a very optimistic right. final chapter on, on this new plan. You have to leave it there. Stephen Rhodes, thank you so much and congratulations on decades of work on the thinking of America and China. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Gabriel Makloff is 
with the Bank of Ireland. He is their governor. And can you imagine, folks, in America, if basically the Federal Reserve System to find a new chairman went out and did a worldwide search? That's what the Bank of Ireland did with some controversy. The uh, British economist of type moving from New Zealand to Ireland, and we're thrilled that the governor could join us this morning. Governor, what is the biggest challenge that Christine Lagarde has just in the coming 90 days? Well, Christine, and the uh, thank you for uh, having me, firstly, um, and uh, uh, thank you for uh, describing me as the most interesting person, but that's for a separate discussion. I think Christine and all the members of the Governing Council um, are facing the, uh, the sorts of challenges that I think many uh, people uh, across Europe, if not the world, are facing, which is dealing with some um, extreme uncertainty. Well, I know we've been talking about that for a while. But the combination of the recovery from the pandemic, the supply chain uh, problems that we've had, the news about China that I've just heard you uh, talk about, uh, the ongoing uh, Russian uh, war in Ukraine and so on, uh, we have a constellation of, um, of issues that we have to navigate through uh, to arrive at uh, the right monetary policy for the euro area. So it's a challenge. Governor, one of the great challenges, and I would note Ireland's leadership in growth for whatever reason is debatable, but the fact is it's been a growth engine. Everything's said and done. Uh, Governor, one of the distinctions here is a belief in the strength, the technology, the nominal GDP of America versus a lesser nominal GDP in Europe. Do you push against that? Do you say we underestimate the potential of European growth forward? Oh, I, I absolutely do. I think the potential there is huge. It's already a very, very big economy, um, and uh, it's ambitious for itself. So I think, uh, and technology is going to be a critical platform for the future. You know, digitalization, uh, climate change, and demography are the big economic transitions that uh, we're all going through right now. And I think Europe is um, has the potential. Um, to uh, to be at the head of all of those, actually. Now let's talk about the reality of the decision, Governor, that you face on December 15th. Can I just start with your base case? Does it include a recession in the Eurozone economy now? I haven't seen the, uh, the ECB staff's forecasts, uh, which we're going to see uh, next week. But my own, my own view is that we're likely to, uh, to see the euro area in a technical recession. I suspect that Q4 uh, this year, the one that, that we're in now, we'll see a very slightly negative um, GDP number. Uh, and we're likely to see that uh, for Q1 next year. On the other hand, my expectation is we're not going to see 2023 as a year of uh, recession. Governor, with that in mind, how does that influence your view of how much tightening we ultimately need? Well, I, uh, in my view, um, uh, you know, we started the normalization of interest rates. People have forgotten that uh, back in June we were in negative rate territory uh, and we're definitely not there now. But I also think that uh, next week when we meet, uh, I think a 50 basis point uh, increase is the sort of floor that we should be discussing. I expect us to go there, but I don't expect us to end there. I do expect us to continue in future meetings. Have you now, got an idea, Governor, far, of how far you would push that? I was about to say, how, how far 
I mean, how far I will push that um, will very much depend on the data uh, and uh, seeing what the projections are telling us, seeing what the uh, latest uh, data are uh, are telling us. But I think, in my view, it's pretty clear that with inflation running at 10%, our target at 2%, uh, core inflation at 5 um, I think it's pretty clear that uh, next week's decision uh, won't be the last increase that we make. Interest rate policy, only one part of this, of course. Uh, we've also got to talk about the unwind of the balance sheet. Can you update us on how discussions are going, how your thoughts are evolving on what we should be doing with the balance sheet that large at the ECB and how you would prefer to unwind it? I mean, my uh, well, firstly, my preference is uh, to unwind it. I think uh, the reasons for having it in the first place, uh, the very long period of uh, low rates and the risk of deflation, those, those reasons are gone. So we now need to uh, look to unwind it. My view is that it needs to be done uh, cautiously and carefully um, and predictably. So uh, my preference would be for us to start slowly, uh, leave ourselves the room for uh, accelerating if we feel it's warranted, but to do it in that order. I don't expect, uh, I expect us to uh, set out at, uh, or to agree at the uh, next week's meeting, a set of principles which the president will, uh, for, uh, for winding the balance sheet down, which the president will announce. I don't expect anything to start until uh, next year, uh, my own preference would be something towards the end of Q1, beginning of Q2. Right. Governor, it's so important here is your experience in New Zealand where there's been a real idea of rules of the road in central banking. I think they've provided decades of leadership on that. Olivier Blanchard and others are talking about a set above 2% in America. Combine your New Zealand experience with the idea that we may not bring inflation down to the comfort level, the anchored level of decades of theory. Can we live in America or in Europe with a higher inflation set? Let's use America as an example of near 3%. Can we live with that? Can there be a permanence to that? Well, uh, at the ECB, we had a review of our strategy like the Fed did before us. Uh, and when we, which we concluded last in July 21, and we concluded that 2% uh, inflation should be the target that uh, we uh, focus on and aim for. Uh, there's been no discussion uh, within the governing council as to whether or not that target should be changed, and I don't expect it to. That should remain our, uh, our focus. On the other hand, I, I am interested in the debates uh, that academics uh, and others are having, and it's—I mean—it's interesting to observe. Um, part of this is about, in my view, anyway. Part of this is about communication. So, in New Zealand, um, the target was actually a range between one to three percent, with the midpoint being right. uh, the. So. It's about how you communicate uh, and then explain what you're doing. Right. But for the, for the moment, the ECB is absolutely focused on 2% right. in the medium term. Is England communicating in the World Cup? Uh, I, think, I think the English team have got an excellent chance uh, to win uh, the World Cup. Um, one of the challenges, you mentioned Christine Lagarde has to uh, manoeuvre 
over the coming weeks is um, making sure that uh, all the members of the governing council <laughs> who are supporting different teams uh, can be managed appropriately. I'm not sure how your Irish colleagues might feel does about she, What scarf that does Madame Lagarde wear here? I mean, what, what is the what, signal on, that we're going to see 15th, into December 18th? I, I imagine there might be some French pride going on there, Tom. There might be some there might French be. pride there. Governor, wonderful to catch up with you, sir. Let's do this again soon. Governor McLeod there of the Bank like of Ireland. i this Tom. in Dublin. I mean, I, I've been saying this Why is there always a trip involved with you? This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.